One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the podcast for issue 47 of Ruler magazine. My name's Jack Thurston, and uh, we're recording this issue at the new palatial headquarters of Rafa, they were kind enough to give us a, a, a little meeting room here. And with me round the table are Michael Brecken, member of the Yorkshire... What was it, Michael? Yorkshire Road Club. The Yorkshire Road Club. Now, Michael is also a former manager of the Canadian national cycling team, uh, a cycle racer himself, and uh, also a journalist. You dabble in film, been in Hollywood... All kinds of things. We're going to hear a little bit more about that um, later in the podcast. And also Richard Moore, a former star bike racer in the 1990s. <laughs> that's, a, that's a huge exaggeration, Jack. Well, this is the Commonwealth Games year. I've got to big you up. Now well known as a uh, cycling journalist, um, author of books, and also podcaster with the, um, the Cycling Arrival podcast. A complimentary podcast. <laughs> The rival mob. Yeah, okay, well, we're talking about the current issue, uh, 47, which um, I think has got a kind of cinematic feel to it. Certainly the, um, the subscriber issue has, um, has these uh, storyboard-like cartoons on the front. And uh, let's dive in straight away um, with uh, our choices of favourite photos from the magazine, uh, photos or photo spreads. Mike? No, well... I think page 20 ca- captures uh, everything that could be about the Tour de France in the UK. I think it was taken in uh, the last visit. Was that 90, 94? No, 2000 and, 2007. This is. Oh, Hang is on, it? this picture? I thought that was down in Can- yeah, on the way to Canterbury. Yeah, in 2007. 2007, right. Yeah. It demonstrates how universal the Tour's appeal is because... That's a kind of a typical Kentish uh, middle-class town. But if you look at the faces on the side of the road, they're as animated and excited as anyone you see on Alpe d'Huez. And it just shows what an extraordinary event the Tour de France is. Richard? I think my favourite spread would have to be the accompanying uh, this feature on Ottavio Batecchia, one of the tragic Italian bike riders of the 1920s. Andy McGrath has tackled him in a, in a long piece about Batechia, whose fascinating character won the Tour de France twice, first Italian to win the Tour, and uh, tragically died while preparing for the Tour on a training ride. Uh, in mysterious circumstances, he was found by the side of the road. There were rumours that he'd been attacked by a farmer 
uh, for stealing grapes. There were all sorts of conspiracy theories about what happened to him. He'd been knocked off by the the mafia, or you know, or the or the, the, the fascist supporters of, of Mussolini. There's a great mystery around his death. But some of the pictures, some of them are quite familiar. There's a great one of him taking his tire off his, his wheel with his teeth, and uh, and there are a couple <laughs> of other. But there are a couple of pictures in there that I haven't seen before, and uh, they're very evocative of that that time. And you know, you see some of these pictures of these these old bike riders and think, you know, they they look they, they look incredibly athletic and muscular, and you could imagine them uh, prospering really in any era. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a, it's a different look, isn't it, to the look of today? It's a different look, but there are similarities. Um, you know, the, the positions are different on the but the bikes are a little bit different, but. You can see that the that, that these guys were were top top athletes. I'm going to choose a a, a, a funny one, page thirty nine. I think this is the um, 1994, judging by the um, era of this gentleman's trainers. Vel- Velcro, are they? <laughs> yeah, they're sort of what are they? They look like they're um, Reeboks. Reeboks. Yeah, Reeboks, blue and white Reeboks there. But what I quite like is this trio of guys who look like they've just. Well, they look like they've just been doing some painting and decorating, then have gone down to the pub and now are watching the Tour de France and they're leaning out to get a better view in the road um, with their pints as a sort of um, counterweight to stop them actually tipping, um, tipping into the road. And then, then there's the chap here on the, on the chair sort of looking a bit professorial with his um, Birkenstocks and his uh, shaggy, shaggy hairdo and glasses. I do like the look of um, cycling crowds out on the street. They are kind of, it's a kind of heterogeneous look, isn't it? It's, all, it's not like when you go to a football match and everyone kind of looks the same. You know, there's a lot of team colours. There's all, all sorts turn out to watch a bike race. And whether it's always a danger if you put it on public roads, I guess. <laughs> well, I think, anyone turning up. I think it's, I think it's the virtue of, of, the, of the sport. Right. Mike, you have written a piece which is telling the story of uh, the film that was never made about the Tour de France. Yeah, well, it's, it's one of a series that were never made, really. I mean, it, the, the whole kind of relationship being, between Hollywood and the Tour de France is really quite extraordinary. Um, since the early, uh, late 1960s, Hollywood has been sniffing around the tour and uh, I think it's fair to say the tour's been sniffing around Hollywood. Um, but it's never, ever actually come to pass. And, and I started, I'd heard in the early 70s about uh, the visit of Dustin Hoffman to the, the, I think, 1969 tour. And that kind of caught my interest. And, and that, I've really been kind of an observer of the scene ever since. As, as far as I could find things out, just watching things happen. And yet here we are uh, today, and there still really isn't a great dramatic movie uh, about the Tour de France, or really come to that any bike race. A lot of people have tried. But it wasn't just Dustin Hoffman going to have a, a recce, was it? They went out and actually shot quite a lot of footage. They did. That, that, uh, that came later, actually, in the 1980s, and the extraordinary uh, Danish filmmaker Jorgen Leth who made that wonderful documentary, A Sunday in Hell, was finally hired by Universal Pictures to actually shoot some footage as a kind of a a recce for what was going to be a film of a book called Yellow Jersey by a British writer called Ralph Hearn. 
but it just never happened. And then there's a huge story. I got totally lost on the internet for weeks trying to find out uh, where the, the footage had gone and what had really happened to it. And the fact is, nobody actually really knows. Well, I mean, this is, this is a, a remarkable revelation for me in your, in your story, is that there's an enormous quantity, and, and he's actually quite sad about it, isn't he? Well, uh, well you, I, yeah. The, he's, you, you, say, you describe him on the verge of tears, saying that there's all this amazing footage that is just gone, but it probably isn't gone. Do you think, with your knowledge of the film industry, do you think it is gone, or do you think it's just in a, in a room somewhere? I think it's probably in a room somewhere, but nobody knows where. Uh, I tried to make contact with Gary Melman, who'd been the producer, who'd bought the rights to the book and had funded, got money out of uh, Universal Pictures to try and do something. And uh, the phone just rang out, nobody answered. Contacts of mine in, in L.A. tried to find him. It's just nobody knows. Jorgen Leth, when I spoke to him, was literally in tears on the phone. There are 50 miles, allegedly, a film shot on that Tour de France uh, in 1984, and it's just out there. Nobody knows where. I think, am I right in thinking they, sh- they, they appeared a, f- a few tours in the mid-'80s? Were they there in '86 as well? There were a number of film crews there on a number of occasions. The big one was '84, uh, where uh, the Tour de France were really behind it, and Leth was shooting, Dustin Hoffman was there, as I tell in the, in the article, um, Paul Sherwin, uh, he was passed. He passed Paul Sherwin on one of the climbs. Um, I knew Paul Sherwin wasn't a great climber, but to be passed by Dustin Hoffman, um, I, the, <laughs> I mean, it's the, quite the, bizarre. In, in the race director's yeah, I know, car, I know, I know. <laughs> but the, the, there is that picture of, of Dustin Hoffman with Greg LeMond at the '84 Tour, and I, I spoke to Jurgen Leth about this a couple of years ago as well, because I have a sort of interest in this because there's just been a film made of my book Slaying the Badger about the 1986 Tour de France, a battle between Eno and Le Monde, and, and they've used a lot of archive footage for that, obviously, but they are aware that there's this treasure trove of, of lost footage that I'm sure would have, would have added even more to it. And it sounds like they got pretty good access, because the tour organisers were on board, so it wasn't a matter of, like, these days where there's a small camera crew trying to do what they can around the margins. You know, this was official... They had complete clearance to do whatever they could. They even had a special Citroen car, apparently set up with cameras. And one of the riders, the Australian guy whose name escapes me, uh, actually had camera... Phil Anderson. It was Phil, yeah. Phil had actually had camera on the bike at one point. So the tour laid itself open and they were hoping that out of it would come uh, a dramatic feature film. They were also very seduced by America at the time, Felix Levitin... Mm -hmm was really looking at America as being a market to expand into. They, they set up a tour of America. And even back then, there was talk of beginning the Tour de France in America one year. Well, actually, the, it goes back even to the 70s. In 1972, uh, believe it or not, I was involved with the Tour de la Nouvelle France, which was a deal with Levitan and the Tour de France in the province of Quebec in Canada, and that ran for three years. Mm. And that was, again, the tour trying to get a foot foothold in North America but again it, it didn't really work out Well we could go into why, uh, why that didn't work out, why the American uh, start or whatever didn't work out but let's talk about, let's stay on the subject of films why didn't this film not come to fruition and why has there not been a really good feature film about this great bike race I think the problem lies that, that, that there are two kinds of films, there are if you will docudramas and then there are feature films 
and Rush, in effect, was a docudrama. And there was some special shooting done at Colwell Park and other tracks to, to bring it all together. But it was pretty effectively done. But it was, it was a real-life story. It was a story of, of the two great drivers of the time. But it needs, for a feature film, you need a great book. And maybe that's a cue for you to think about, Richard. <laughs> well, I mean, the, there is uh, forthcoming, and I saw a trailer the other night, actually, for the new Lance Armstrong film, feature film, starring Ben Foster, uh, which is based on David Walsh's book, Seven Deadly Sins. And I've heard a couple of people who've seen sort of first cuts of it who are very complimentary about it, but I must say, based on the trailer, my expectations aren't very high. I think perhaps because... Uh, that adjustment of seeing an actor playing Lance Armstrong is, is, is a difficult one to make when you are so familiar yourself with Armstrong. Perhaps over the course of a, of a film, you grow comfortable with that. But I wasn't overly impressed with the, 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 the sort of very short trailer. I mean, there have been a few documentaries recently. The yeah. Pantani one, obviously, which I, I think, personally, I think was, was disappointing. There were bits that really jarred in that. I, there was some excellent footage, but it didn't really work for me. Armstrong Lie, I thought, was pretty pretty awful film. Two films in one, which it, I think you mentioned in, in the piece as well. The new Armstrong film, Stop at Nothing, is excellent. Really, really worth watching. Um, but there, there, there is a spate of cycling films at the moment. As you say, a number of good documentaries. Paul Le Mayo Jaune is probably one of the best. And I actually used that to, to help sell the concept of the Tour de la Nouvelle France in the 70s. But it's just never really happened. I think it's probably very, very difficult to get actors to go through what a Tour de France rider has to. Yeah, I mean, there's... And to make it look maybe, real. Maybe we should ask ourselves, what are the really successful sports films in general uh, that we can look at? Chariots of Fire. That's about it, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, are there many more... Rocky was tremendously popular, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, but I guess and, and if had you're a, a boxing aficionado, you'd probably watch it and, and and not be that impressed. I think the closer you are to sport, the more you mm. you really you can spot the difference between an actor playing a cyclist and a cyclist. You, yeah. you can spot it a mile off. And you know the Graham O'Brien film was pretty good, but again, the, some of the cycling sequences in it for a, somebody who really knows the sport and knows what bike riders actually look like and knows what what a bunch of riders looks like. There were bits of it that really, you know, you just had to look away for a, a few months. Well, I mean, I suppose um, as a, a student of ballet would say the same about Absolutely. Black Swan, yeah. but that doesn't mean that it's not an entertaining film for the general public that will open no, the door to, to a certain true. extent to the milieu of, of ballet. But, but the problem is, um, as you say, it wouldn't be particularly uh, positively received by, by a ballotomane, but these days millions of people watch the Tour de France on television mm. you know and they know what it really looks like so it's I think it's very very difficult to reproduce See, that. people love sport don't they because they love watching supremely talented skilled practitioners they enjoy watching the best in the world do what they're good at whether it be the football world cup or the Tour de France and so to see actors try to, to pull that off it's it's quite a leap of the imagination to to get beyond these aspects of their performance, I suppose, that, that will, I think, inevitably jar a little. I mean, I guess what you're trying to convey is perhaps not um, a reproduction of what you see on the television when you're watching something live or the 
evening highlights package, but you're trying to go and get this inside story that you maybe only can get a few years later. And the human drama. And the human yeah. drama of what's going on with these people, which I guess brings us, Richard, to your new book. Oh, that was nicely done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what a pro. Hoping to pick up a few tips today, Jack. Well, you know, listen and learn, Richard. Um, Etap is a, is a collection of your tellings of the stages of the Tour de France that you consider to be the most interesting mm. um, and revealing about the sport. I love it when books, a bit like Max Leonard's book about um, the Lantern Rouge, the last man in the race, it seems like an obvious concept, but no one's done it before. So congrats on, on, nice. on, on that. Um, what, yeah. what gave you the idea to, to break down the tour into into stages over the tour's entire history? <laughs> An editor gave me the idea. It wasn't my idea. And I was pretty... I was quite sceptical at first. I had to be convinced that it was a good idea. And the way I think that it proceeded for me was to make it quite personal. Selection, there's not... It's not the greatest stages of the tour. They are literally just stages that are, I think are interesting and that there, there's an interesting story attached to. But also, and crucially, to base each chapter around a, a, a new interview with the protagonist or protagonists and there's a lot of you know sort of recycled Tour de France history and a lot of the, the stories are very familiar and so to make it fresh and to make it interesting for me it was crucial to go out and, and meet the, the riders going all the way back the earliest stages is Merckx in 71 uh, and all, all the way up to David Miller in 2012 and you know some of the stages are, are, are tales of great stage victories some of them are tales of awful crashes some of them involve you know, cheating, doping. Some of them involve weird uh, team combines. One of them involves the sort of looking at the, the Tour de France from the back of the race, you know, what it's like to be in the Gruppetto, even struggling to stay in the Gruppetto. So I want, you know, it's, a, it's almost a virtual tour, 20 chapters, 20 stages, um, you know, with a selection of flat mountains, etc., a couple of time trials. Um, so it's kind of virtual Tour de France, but also it isn't. And I think that what I wanted was for the chapters to work on their own but also to be sort of interconnected and inevitably some of the the characters like Bernardino for example who's on the cover uh, he pops up in, in quite a few chapters and in fact is even very influential in, a, in, in one stage that he wasn't even riding for example <laughs> so yeah it's, it's, it's a sort of selection of odd, bizarre, great interesting, scandalous stages and you are a journalist who writes about what happened on today's stage, but this is kind of a history view. They say uh, journalism is the, the first draft of history. Do you feel that the stuff you're writing about in terms of what happened today, what happened yesterday, do you think that in 10 years' time you'll look back and mm. talk to people and come up with a, a different story? Definitely, because at the Tour de France, because the stages come so thick and fast and there's a new one every day, you, you will write the report of that stage that day and literally the next day it's forgotten. I mean, it might be referenced again in your overall telling of the race, but really it's forgotten. And, and each day on the tour, generally, you only hear the stories of two or three participants in the stage. You hear from the winner, you hear from the guy in the yellow jersey, maybe one or two others, the breakaway, one or two others. And so, you know, for example, what, to take one example, um, the, the story in, in 1998, the stage to lead us out, which was won, won by Marco Pantani, which laid the foundations for his Tour de France victory. Bobby Julich was... Uh, chasing him for a lot of that, that stage starting up the final climb and he believed he was riding into the yellow jersey um, and he thought that that was what was going to happen that day, it was a very dramatic day with terrible weather 
Bobby Dulick had an amazing story from that stage, but it wasn't one I don't think he'd ever actually told until I interviewed him for this book, uh, you know, a few months ago. And that's kind of what happens. You know, there are so many, there are 190 stories a day at the Tour de France, and only a couple of them get told. And also with, with time... You know, Bobby Julich again. You know, now he can talk about the doping part of it, which he couldn't do a year ago. So, there are things that happen. There are there's the the perspective of time uh, that you know, the fact that you're no longer you've got the same teammates, rivals, etc. You can speak far more openly about what what actually went on. And have you found yourself contradicting or, or the contemporary record and finding out things that were said at the time that were not true? Because we do hear a little bit about about things that were written at the time, particularly going back mm. further into the, the the mists of time before there was, especially before there was proper television yeah. coverage. That what was written in the newspaper mm. was almost a, a fantasy and a fabrication. There's uh, what, to, what, yeah. to sell the newspapers. There's one in particular, a stage from 1976, one by Jose Luis Viejo, a very obscure Spanish writer who didn't have a, an illustrious career at all. But he won the stage, and he still holds the record for the biggest ever margin of victory, just over 22 minutes he won by on his own. And the story that was reported at the time was that he'd been allowed to go, that it was a deal to save his team that was struggling. And, uh, you know, going to interview him, according to him, that was absolute balderdash, that, you know, that wasn't what happened at all. And even the reports on the day of him being away in a break early on with a teammate were wrong, and there, were, there was loads of misreporting. And, of course... It's still, it's still a challenging event to report on because you don't see, it's not like it doesn't happen in an arena, you don't see everything that, that goes on. Um, but in those days especially, I was following mainly the report by Jeffrey Nicholson in his great book, um, The Great Bike Race. And, you know, he talks in that book about stopping for coffee with his colleagues. So they, they, missed, they actually missed a lot of the stage and they were out of uh, range of, of race radio for a while. So there was, especially back then, quite a large element of guesswork and, and, and they would all agree what version of the, the story version of the stage they were going to tell so you can, you can go back and you can definitely uh, correct a few myths that have, that have formed and survived over the years Well let's turn to um, a stage of the Tour de France that um, Richard and I won't be able to shed much light on from being um, on the roadside but Michael you will um, and this is when the uh, Tour de France first came to Britain. Um, there's a long feature um, by Ian Cleverly about the, the, the three times that the Tour has uh, come to our shores. And the first one was in 1974, um, with actually another terrific picture here um, on, the, on the, uh, the A38 in Plymouth. Um, the, the story that Ian tells, um, which is really Barry Hoban's story is that it was a complete disaster from their uh, arrival um, at the uh, at an airbase and being um, held up in customs and locked in a cabin uh, the, the, the riders and, and, and all the, uh, the, the entourages um, to the uh, to the final sprint in the stage which had a roundabout 200 meters from the line uh, which is not obviously ideal for a sprint finish what's your recollection of that day Michael well it uh First of all, I'd rented a car in Portsmouth and driven down to Plymouth to watch it, and I really don't think it was worth it because it was, I'd say, in one word, boring. Uh, but it's a bit unfair because there's more to it than, as usual, meets the eye. Poor old Barry Hoban, of course, was got all the blame because uh, the riders were all blaming him. He was the only, I think, English-speaking rider in the tour. But actually, the real blame lies with Felix Levitin, the director of the tour, who had a choice of, of, of uh, routes 
in uh, Devon. One was this dreadful bypass, which wasn't even open to traffic, which was why they used it. And the other one was apparently was a, was a very exciting circuit of Dartmoor. And Alf Palmer, who was the organiser and is still around, still amongst us, uh, said that it was Levitown's decision. So, you know, I don't, why did he make that decision? Maybe so that, you know, the tour would hopefully never come back to the UK. Surely you know? not. I mean, they had no reason to come, did they? I mean, what was it? What, what was the reason for them the, coming? The, there were two reasons. One was to promote um, the artichokes of Brittany. And the other one was to promote a new ferry service from Plymouth to, I think it was Roscoff. Oh, that's right, Brittany starting, Ferries, yes. yes. Which was starting that year. But, you know, awareness and interest in, in bike racing, even the tour, was so low in this country at that time that I don't think it achieved anything very much. So they had them go up and down this bypass. It was a circuit five of a times. kind, yes. I mean, that's a, a very strange thing to, for the Tour de France to do, isn't it, well, it's Richard? Well, really, it's really interesting to learn that it was... Levitan, the tour itself that demanded that and because I think there's always been a perception here that it was the British not really getting what the Tour Absolutely. de France was all about that's what people have always believed um, so it's really that's that's an interesting revelation really that, that, that Levitan and you get the you get the sense that they were just wanting to, for it to be as incident free and trouble free and, and get it over with I think the impetus for it came from the Brittany farmers, didn't it? it there was, so there were commercial interests, but they were, it was almost just like a box ticking exercise, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. And then the next time the, the tour came was 20. I was there for years that. years later. Yeah, 94. No, 20 years later. Yeah. Okay, so uh, yeah. What, was, what was your recollection? Oh, I, was, I came down to, to London for, for, to witness the, the tour's uh, arrival in 94, um, and I can't, I can't remember where I where I went and watched it but I went and st- stood at the side of the road and it was a funny tour because Chris Boardman was riding his first tour and he'd taken the yellow jersey in Lille in the prologue and then he lost it in the team time trial the day before the tour came to England and you would have thought you know that would have been a huge a huge deal for Boardman to beat in yellow on British roads and it's, it's something that I, I remember Boardman telling me about the the team time trial where his team Credit Agricol they were at the time. No, GAN, apologies, they were GAN. On the morning of the team time trial, his teammates were riding around on their low-profile bikes with Allen keys, adjusting the saddles. They, they had not ridden, they weren't familiar with their time trial bikes. They hadn't ridden as a team. They hadn't prepared at all for the team time trial. So they were a bit of a disaster, uh, and that was an opportunity lost. And then as soon as the tour went back to France, Sean Yates took the yellow jersey. So it was almost just, <laughs> just while it was in Britain that... There was a, the Italian rider from the GBMG team whose name escapes me at the moment was in was in yellow when it was over here. Yeah. Teammate of Johan Museo. Chris did did try and redeem himself because the first of the British stages finished in Brighton and I was at the finish line and I think he sprinted for fourth place and he, I think he says in the article that, that, that it was some an effort on his part to at least redeem what he'd lost the day before which was pretty sad really he attacked on a spot of the road where young David Miller was standing watching the race in fact and uh, David was quite impressed but it left quite an impression on him and Boardman had this reputation as a time trialist as somebody who wasn't really a road racer and for David that reputation was at odds with his memory of him showing real panache and attacking in the stage and so would you put that visit down as a success 
Uh, huge, huge yes, success. yeah. I saw it both days, and I mean, it was it was fantastic. And with any lasting well, legacy, I think probably in in in. Uh, I mean, it was extremely difficult for Alan Rushton to organise that with going through the the most busily trafficked part of of southern England. And I think if it achieved one thing, possibly it was that uh, local authorities and so on began to understand what serious cycle racing meant and what it required. And then it moved on from then to the next visit. I mean, it's pictures here show pretty big crowds. Crowds were enormous. The crowds were enormous. And uh, there was a novelty aspect to it, whereas now the crowd is more uh, knowledgeable and Mm. they they understand it more. Mm. But... There was there was great enthusiasm for it, and and I got there was a real festival atmosphere yeah. to the point where I just heard this morning on the Northern Regional News that they've now put an extra two million quid into crowd control for the tour in Yorkshire. Are oh, they going to need it? They're going to need I it. Mean, quickly sure. through two thousand and seven, I'm told through the eyes of Geraint Thomas, um, the youngest rider, to start that year's race. Um, I remember that. I remember both days, actually. I remember the prologue more for going out the night before after they'd just closed it off uh, at about four in the morning, having been at the pub until shortly before then with a friend who... And we raced around, and there was nobody else there, just us. And my friend crashed into the barriers um, and completely wrecked his bike. And, well did quite a lot of damage to his own self and then riding out to watch it in Kent and seeing David Miller and maybe he had a little bit of a thought of Chris Boardman thought that maybe he would inspire somebody on that I day I think that's exactly right and also Robert Miller because he took mm. the King of the Mountains jersey that day um, so there was yeah it was it was certainly a, it was a, an attack that was sort of a nod towards Boardman and, and Miller and all the other Riders who'd ridden, British riders who'd ridden the tour. He was putting on a show, basically, wasn't he? This year, the the tour in Yorkshire. I mean, what what are the photos? The tours in like? Yorkshire. What are the? As I said, Richard, uh, you'll pick up a lot during this during this podcast with us. You know, take it all back <laughs> yeah. to the cycling podcast and uh, use it well. I can't wait to tell them that the tour is starting in Yorkshire. Yeah, they're going to love that. Um, at, the, at, at the risk of death by Twitter, I have to say that I'm afraid. Uh, it's very unlikely that Mr Cavendish will win first stage. Controversial. That's, that's, He's going to win it. If Sagan's on form, Kittle. more like it. No, I don't think so. No? No. 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 Uh, it's an evil finish, and it hasn't been written up at all, although obviously uh, Cav has, has been aware of it. Funny story about Cav, by the way. He was wrecking recently the first stage and his sat now broke down and two club cyclists came across him in a bus shelter in Leyburn not knowing where to go it's an evil finish and, I, and I'm actually quoting Sid Barris on this Sid thinks there's no chance at all for him technical or very technical yeah. where the, the trains are usually getting themselves in shape it's quite a steep climb then you drop down quite steeply to the Royal Hall and then it's only about I think probably 500 metres to the line, most of it quite a sharp little uphill. Interesting, I didn't know that actually. No. I hadn't really studied it in that, yeah, in that it's, sort it's of It's going detail. to be a very interesting, very interesting finish. Because mm, certainly the script is for him to win that stage and take the yellow jersey, isn't it? Well, of course it is. And, and the same, I really don't think he's going to pull it off. Ruler magazine will be putting on an exhibition of photographs 
by the great cycling photographer Bernard Thompson, whose work often features in the magazine and in fact features in the current issue, um, the uh, 1974 pictures, I think, from the tour in the southwest. The exhibition runs from June the 18th until June the 29th at the Riverhouse Art Centre, Manor Road, Walton-on-Thames, in Surrey. In Surrey? I thought it was in Yorkshire. Okay. Sorry, Yorkshire. Sorry, Yorkshire. <laughs> maybe maybe um, Yorkshire can annex Surrey and kind of shake things up. I don't think we better go down that road. In fact, that, um, <laughs> in can, I, can I just add something to that? That day, Sunday the 22nd of June, at the same place, Walton-on-Thames, the Riverhouse Arts Centre, myself and a couple of colleagues are, giving a, are doing a talk, I think, at 2 o'clock that day, part of the same thing, with Lionel Burney and... I think Ellis Bacon okay so come along well and have you got any upcoming events do you'd like to advertise Michael <laughs> no but just talking of Bernard Thompson he, he was an extraordinary character he he made his his daily bread going out to time trials taking photographs of every single rider because we had numbers on uh, he knew which one was which and then at the end, with, with our finishing sheet, we got a little receipt that said, if you want a picture of yourself in the whatever, 50, you filled in and sent a post order, and Bernard Thompson sent you the picture. Yeah, and he actually made quite a good living at that, but was an extremely creative guy and did some wonderful photography, uh, not just the time trials, as, as you can see from the... Uh, the Tour de France picture. Are, are, the, are the photographs of... I'm just having a look here, because there's a feature at the back of the magazine about Dave Acom. Uh, that really... I, Great I enjoyed writer. that. That's Andy McGraw again. Yeah. Um, but very interesting I know, story. That very, also is yeah. Bernard Thompson. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. yeah David, David, David Acom is one of these forgotten British riders who you know, rode alongside Francesco Moser in, in the 80s, um, including the Giro that he won in 1984. Fascinating story, and uh, I think Andy's uh, the expression is he slipped through the cracks of British cycling history, and uh, it's good that he's gone and dug them out. I mean, do you spend a lot of time peeking through the, the floorboards because that must be where you know the good stuff is? Yeah, well, that guy I mentioned, Jose Luis Viejo, is another very obscure writer who disappeared, and yeah, there are others, others as well. Wilfred Nelson features in. In my book, the writer who had a terrible crash in '94 in Armentier, um, when he hit a policeman who was taking a photograph, oh. and Wilfred Nelson, that was an, a, an awful crash. And then he had another one a couple of years later that ended his career. And he's one of the rare Belgians who's disappeared from the sport. Most of them s- stick around in some capacity, but he'd vanished, and, and he runs a, a courier company now. And weirdly, his job takes him to Armentier quite a lot, and. Every time he passes through there, he feels a kind of shiver. But he, as he put it, he said, there's, there's nothing for me to forget because I can't remember anything. God, that's it. Well, that's a terrifying but a great line. Um, speaking of um, what did they do next, um, we have a competition for a copy of Richard's book, Etap, which we've heard a lot about um, on the podcast, and I'm sure you're excited to read it. And if you answer this question correctly, then um, then a, a copy will be sent to you um, as a prize. Um, if you're the one that's pulled out of the hat, do you want uh, me to ask the question, Richard? Yeah, because I can't remember what okay, the question okay. is. Which uh, 1989 Tour de France stage winner is now a sculptor? That is um, that is a curveball. I tried really hard not to mention him while I was talking about the book, 
So there, there are no clues earlier on. Which 1989 stage winner is now a sculptor and a sculptor of working, working primarily in wood? Working, well, okay, right, a wood oriented sculptor. Send by email um, your answer to that um, to competition at ruler.cc and we'll pick a winner out of, uh, out of those correct, that enormous avalanche of correct answers that there's going to be. But um, I'm guessing that, I guess someone could go to the bookshop, pick up a copy of uh, Etap. If they do that, I suggest just buying it. Read it. <laughs> just buy it. Get the answer. No, then, you're, not, you're, not, you're not allowed to open it and finger through the pages okay. if you're not going to buy it. Okay. That's just rude. Yeah. If you, um, Wattis and staff will be on the lookout for that. <laughs> We'll, we'll send out the memo now. Um, so elsewhere in the uh, in the issue, you can read about Pedro Delgado, Carlos Arribas, and Tim Cohn taking the photographs, catching up with um, the winner of the 1988, 1988 tour, Lawrence Ten Dam profile interview. Can I, well, can I can I just endorse that because the Lawrence Ten Dam feature is he's one of the most interesting current writers, and his story. In, in this edition of Ruler is absolutely fascinating. I, I highly recommend it. Guy Andrews has been over to Zip uh, to look at their fast wheels. And you've got your usual um, columns from Matt Seaton, Johnny Green and Robert Miller, as well as the uh, latest instalment in Duncan Forbes' Brief History of Cycling Photography. So in a doormat flattening edition of Ruler, that's, that's it. And that's it for the podcast Michael Brecken, Richard Moore, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks for downloading this edition of the Ruler podcast. You can read Ruler magazine, which comes out eight times a year, by taking out a subscription. Go to www.ruler.cc or you can pick up the latest edition at a growing number of bookshops and bike shops. If you've got an iPad you can read the magazine on the iPad. Not only the current issue, but a handful of back issues as well. You'll find it in the Apple Bookstore. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.